Hello and welcome to another episode of the Vinyl Countdown, the podcast where I, Jeremy Levine, break down my favorite vinyl releases from cover to cover and everything in between. Oh boy, do I have a big one this week. So this record turned 20 in June of this year, of this past summer, uh, June 13th to be exact, and uh, so I figured, hey, what better time to do an episode on it than now, right? Uh, right in time or a little after the 20th anniversary. So I will be diving into 2000's The Moon and Antarctica by Modest Mouse. It's crazy because I haven't done a Modest Mouse episode yet, even though I own more records by them than any other band in my collection. So I have 10 Modest Mouse releases so far. And yeah, just haven't had a chance to do an episode yet. I think it's partly because these are some of my favorite albums ever. So I want to get it just right and uh, have enough time to really devote to it and, and really be satisfied with it, with, with the outcome of the uh, episode or whatever. But also, they're really big albums, too, with a lot. There's a lot to unpack with them. So uh, researching and really picking them apart is also kind of a daunting task. But that's all going to change this week because, you know, I'm diving right in, right? Uh, now, before I get into the band and my discovery of them and all the lengths I went through to get, <laughs> to get this album in the first place, like way back in the day on CD, let's head on down to Variant Corner. So uh, Discogs only has seven listed, although it appears the actual number should only be three. So there was a pressing on black vinyl in the UK and the US in 2000, uh, either of which can be bought for as low as $35 or as high as 200 for some reason. Uh, it always makes me laugh to see people try to sell things for like a ridiculously high price when there are literally a dozen other versions of the exact same record for way like 150 to $170 cheaper. That makes no sense. 2010 saw another pressing. This was a 10th anniversary edition. Uh, this is the one that I picked up in uh, 2016 in San Diego, actually, on our uh, marriage slash honeymoon slash vacation trip, right? Now, it would make more sense that it was the 2015 repress because it's unlikely that that record would have sat there for six years before I got it. But I honestly don't remember what the sticker said on the packaging. Uh, whatever the case, there again, there was a 15th, anniversary edition in the UK on one on black, one on clear vinyl. Uh, the clear was limited to 500 and there's one for sale for $117. Uh, the black is around 35 to 40 with going as high as 70. So that's the three. There's another listing that all that says 2017, but it shows the 2010 10th anniversary edition. So I think that's a trash listing. Again, like I said, it, it would make more sense that mine was the, the 15th anniversary, but uh, then again, who knows? Like I said, I don't, I don't remember what I don't remember what the uh, the hype sticker said, but uh, whatever the case, just plain old black vinyl. Uh, nothing particularly um, special, I guess, about the packaging or anything. I was kind of hoping for like a 20th anniversary edition, uh, maybe with like some cool extras and fun color variants and all that. But um, nothing has been announced so far. And now we're in August, so I think it's safe to say we're probably not going to get that. So, but, you know, regardless of that, the, the record sounds great, uh, which is nice. And again, like I said, there's no, there's nothing really special about the packaging. Like I do like when bands kind of go all out and give you something really like, like an, an extra incentive, I guess, for ordering the vinyl. Uh, Touche Amore stands out in my mind because like their vinyl packages are always like top notch, like all their box sets. And I mean, it's just, they really go above and beyond or whatever. Um, but with that being said, it's still an incredible album from start to finish. I will say this up top, the Lonesome Crowd at West is actually like... That's my absolute favorite, but um, this album is a, is a, a very, very, very close second. 
Uh, I'll get into why it's not number one. Uh, so I guess the reason I, I didn't do the Lonesome Crowded West is because, again, this is hitting the 20-year mark, and that's pretty special. But I also have something special planned for Lonesome later this year. So stick around for that. Just I'll, I'll just say this. December will be a very special month. So uh, let's get into the band a little bit. So uh, they were formed in 1993 in Issaquah, Washington, by guitarist singer Isaac Brock, uh, drummer Jeremiah Green, and bassist Eric Judy. Now, when uh, Brock was a teenager, he was employed at a local family video store just outside of Seattle. Uh, that's where he met bassist Eric Judy, and uh, later they, they both discovered Jeremiah Green, who also resided near Seattle, at a uh, heavy metal show where they met, at which point they decided to make music together. So... In 1994, at Calvin Johnson's Dub Narcotic Studios, Modest Mouse recorded their first EP, Blue Cadet 3, Do You Connect, uh, which was released by K Records. This was followed by a single, Broke, which is one of my favorite songs in the world by them, recorded by Steve Wold, a.k.a. Bluesman C16. <laughs> Dumb fucking name. Um, under <laughs> Sub Pop Records at Moon Studios in Olympia, Washington. Uh, during this time, Modest Mouse also recorded what would have been its first album, Sad Sappy Sucker, uh, but constant delays caused caused the album to be shelved and forgotten. Uh, it actually wasn't officially released until 2001. Uh, before the band made its way into pop into the pop music world in 2004, uh, many of Modest Mouse's tours included stops at DIY slash punk venues. Uh, after moving to Up Records, Modest Mouse released two full-length albums and other recordings, including the 1996 LP, This is a Long Drive for Someone with Nothing to Think About. Uh, Steve Wold also recorded and produced this album, and at the time was assisting in the recordings as well, but was not officially part of the band. Along with the next offering, Interstate 8. The 1997 album, The Lows from Crowded West, also recorded at Moon Studios by Scott Swayze, served as the band's breakthrough. The Lonesome Crowded West gained the band a cult following and is now popularly considered to be one of the defining albums of mid-90s indie rock. Uh, during this time, Nick Kraft became involved with the task of refining the band's sound. Prior to its release, the band had recorded the EP The Fruit That Ate Itself. In 1999, Up Records released a singles and rarities collection entitled Building Nothing Out of Something that includes the entirety of Interstate 8 except for the songs Edit the Sad Parts and Buttons to Push the Buttons. In 2000, Modest Mouse released, of course, The Moon in Antarctica, the uh, first album for Epic Records. The album, produced by Califones, it's a band, uh, Brian Deck, during five months of sessions in Chicago, was met with critical acclaim, including a 9.8 out of 10 score from online music magazine Pitchfork Media, uh, despite concerns about releasing material on a major label. The album would later receive further acclaim. Uh, the album's title is taken from the opening scene of 1982's uh, Blade Runner, where the main character is reading a newspaper with the headline, Farming the Oceans, the Moon, and Antarctica. The band licensed Gravity Rides Everything for a Nissan Quest minivan advertisement, a move that Brock was has publicly acknowledged as blatantly commercial, but necessary to achieve financial stability. Uh, regarding the commercial, Brock stated, quote, People who don't have to make their living playing music can bitch about my principles when they spend their parents' money or wash dishes for some asshole. I didn't know who they were yet, so I, I, I guess I missed that controversy, but um, I can imagine people being like, Oh, Modest Mouth is sold out. It's like, fuck that. Let them make money. Shit. That's why you, I mean, that's why you're doing what you're doing. You, you, you're, I understand doing music because you love it and you're doing it for the passion and all this kind of stuff. But if you can make a living doing it and not compromise, you know, the music you're making or, or whatever, right? The art you're putting out is still what you're wanting to do. Then why not get paid for it? 
So I don't know. That, that's always been. I, I can't say I've always felt like that. I mean, I was young once, and <laughs> I sound like I'm fucking seventy. But there was a time where if I saw a band that I really liked, and they maybe kind of broke through a part of me was like, oh, they're selling out. That's but that's the dumbest fucking thing. Thankfully, I've kind of grown and I've moved on from that that way of thinking. But so, like I said earlier, so I I was going to get into how I discovered them. I've talked about it before in the show. the The famous uh, New York trip in the summer of two thousand four. It, it was Fuse was playing music and they were awesome. And this was back when they were like twenty four seven playing all kinds of indie shit. And uh, we didn't have it here, so every time I got a chance to, well, I say every time. This is the first time I had a chance to. To find, like, I didn't, I didn't know what it was before I went to New York that summer. And uh, thanks to that summer, I found Coheed and Cambria, Taking Back Sunday, Modest Mouse, Franz Ferdinand, uh, Avenged Sevenfold. Back when they were decent for like I don't know two weeks. I don't know. I feel like it's quite a lineup to discover all at one time. Now, I will say though, with Coheed and Taking Back Sunday, I actually knew who they were. I, I had an idea of them because in the liner notes for Thursday's War All the Time which came out in September of 03. They thank Coheed and Tangamax Sunday and some other, and a lot of other bands. And that was kind of something I did, uh, which is why I always say that War All the Time changed my life because before that I had bands and I was finding, like I, I knew who Brand New was and like, there's a couple of other bands, I guess, that were in that similar kind of circle or whatever that I was finding, but I really didn't start diving into those bands or like really trying to find them hardcore until I saw or until I read that in the liner notes, because I was like, man, if they're cool enough to be thanked by Thursday, they're probably a good band. And so, like, I just went down a fucking rabbit hole and started just, like, finding, trying to listen to every single band that I could. Now, keep in mind, though, it's 2003, so we didn't have YouTube yet. Uh, we didn't have any streaming music services. Didn't, I mean, I guess you could get on to, at the time, would have been Bear Share and try to take your time, you know, sifting through a thousand fucking listings and trying to find songs like it, it was a bit of a chore to it was a bit of a chore to like find songs or whatever so uh, i guess coheed and taking back sunday sort of slipped through the cracks i mean there, there were some bands that i from that time that I, or from that that list that i was like ooh, i'm gonna check them out but for whatever reason they you know slipped through the cracks i guess and then i discovered them then right also so the video for float on which was uh stylistically kind of similar to take me out my friends Ferdinand I used to actually get them confused uh when I didn't realize I didn't really know which band was which and I kind of hear them and like oh this, I think this is the video I saw earlier and then it would start up and I'm like oh no 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 this is the other one and like that kind of thing right so anyway later that year in October I heard Ocean Breathe Salty and I was done I was hooked so I bought good news for bad good news for people who love bad news and I was like all in with them you know uh, I had to get every release that I could after that speaking of this album the cd i had to go to fye in lafayette to find it because like the mall in town i don't know that we had a sam goody i guess maybe we did but um it was shit anyway and then the only other place we had was like walmart i don't think we had a best buy yet that wasn't that wasn't built yet we had circuit city which is where i got uh thursday's uh, five stories falling cd and a, a bunch of other pretty good pretty good bands or whatever i bought over the years there but Nobody had this Modest Mouse album in town, not a single fucking store. So I don't think I drove specifically to Lafayette to get it, but I think it was like, it's on my mind. <laughs> so I'm going to go to Lafayette. I'm going to Lafayette anyway, but I'm going to make a special trip to the mall just to get this album, right? And um, 
That's pretty cool too. So my buddy Chance, uh, shout out. He gave me in exchange for my acoustic guitar at the time. I think that. And I, I gave I sold him my guitar for like seventy five bucks. I think I I had paid like a hundred for it or maybe even a hundred I don't know. I, I forget how much I paid for it, but I know that it it would appear on the surface that I lost out on the on the deal or whatever. But let's say it was one fifty, right? And at the time, CDs are costing fifteen to twenty bucks a piece. You know, he he gave me eight albums total they weren't all modest mouse but it, it was all of the modest mouse albums that i did not have yet i think a sparkle horse album pink floyd and I believe an ugly casanova record which is of course uh, it's isaac brock's uh, side band right and so i got eight albums and like i said a few of which had i found them all anyway it would have cost me more than that 150 right so if I got, uh, it just if nothing else i broke even which is fine you know, so pretty great deal if you ask me. Because again, super hard to track these albums down. Like there was like no surefire way to get them. So it all worked out. Anyway, let's get into the music, shall we? Track one, one of the best opening songs of any album, which I've, I've been saying that a lot lately, but the last few shows I've done have featured albums that have incredible opening tracks. It just so happens to be a thing that's just that's been pretty consistent so third planet right uh he starts it off with everything that keeps me together is falling apart i got this thing that i consider my only art of fucking people over and also the guitar in the song is fucking great the 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 opening like it's just oh it's so good so According to Song Genius, which I always, you know, I lean on quite a bit. It says, uh, here we see another contradiction, art, and uh, fucking people over. Uh, this contradiction could reveal the speaker in the first stanza as the earth itself. The art is, the, is in this case, the internal cycle of birth, life, death, and rebirth. The cycle has inspired artists for a long time. This contradiction could reveal another central paradox, that all life comes from death. Although humans may see death as being, quote, fucked over the earth would see the bigger picture that all death nourishes life which is a very artistic notion again according to song genius but you know i kind of like it so this album as a whole too uh, there's going to be a lot of guessing at the song meeting so kind of bear with me on that uh modest mouse are known for their metaphors and symbolism and just seemingly fucking nonsense that (laughs) that isaac will just spew out sometimes so some of this might not be very accurate uh but at the very least i'm trying and uh you know, you may have a different interpretation, but again, also, art is subjective, so that's okay, you know? I still love the lyrics too where he says, um, the third planet is sure that they're being watched by an eye in the sky that can't be stopped. When you get to the promised land, you're going to shake the eye's hand, which, uh, you know, it's the idea of a, I guess, a god or whatever that's uh, referenced to me based off of how they view God on other songs. It seems like there's kind of a, maybe like a tongue-in-cheek way that he delivers that, and it's kind of like a Come on, people. This makes no sense, right? So later he sings in the chorus, uh, Your heart felt good. It was dripping pitch and made of wood. And your hands and knees felt cold and wet on the grass to me. While outside naked, shivering, looking blue from the cold sunlight that's reflecting off the moon. Baby come angels fly around you, reminding you we used to be three and not just two. And that's how the world began. And that's how the world will end. Now, I saw two different interpretations of this. One, this line could be about a person who has lost a baby or a parent or 
or someone, right? So their family is physically only two people instead of three. This line could also be about how when we grow up, we leave families behind. This is what we and all the other animals do when we reach a certain age. By the way, uh, I just learned this too. So it's <laughs> it's written out as like, come, like C-U-M, which is like, I never, I, always, I don't know why, I just never really, I sang the line and I never really thought about it, what it meant. I was just like, ah, we'll figure it out later, right? I just kind of never did. But according to this, it's Latin for either with or also. Uh, when this word is used in English, it's usually written as a noun and it's usually used to describe attributes of a person or thing that seem contradictory. Uh, given that it's written in the liner notes without hyphens, most people mistake the word for a vulgar, wor- vulgar word for semen, and it's essentially part of making babies. The double entendre is potentially intentional, but uh, so but when he says, you know, baby come angel is a baby that is also now an angel, referring to the next line, the couple's uh, child has maybe passed away, and then our, you know, angels often represent mourning. So uh, conversely, it might be a reference to cherubs in Renaissance art, these are the little winged babies, of course, that you see, uh, like Cupid or whatever is depicted as. Uh, they're associated with making people fall in love. So the double entendre in this line wouldn't be the first explicit association of these cute little baby angels, I guess, with sex. As Raphael's uh, cherubs from the Sistine Chap- well, the, the Sistine Madonna have appeared on packs of condoms before. Sure, why not, right? It's kind of fun. Uh, the song, though, you know, the sound, everything, it's fucking perfect. I kind of feel like um, it's kind of a perfect jumping off point if you've never heard a modest mouse song like if you're trying to get somebody into them this is a good song i think to start them on track two gravity rides everything is up next i remember hearing this song uh this is like a year or so maybe after i got this album and um the movie accepted had it in the one part or whatever it shows up or whatever and i was like god damn Minus Mouse is in a big-ass movie. Like, what? Uh-huh, yeah. But the song. I love the instrumentation in it. It has an odd uh, rhythm that's like, it's very much like, quote, Modest Mouse, I guess. I feel like this album, I feel like this album and the Lonesome Crowded West, it was like the most on-brand sound for them. Like, this was like their like peak Modest Mouse-ness, I guess. I, I can't really tell you what the song is about, but I know that I love it. Uh, in the chorus, he sings, um... In the motions and the things that you say, it all will fall, fall right into place. As fruit drops, flesh it sags, everything will fall right into place. Right? Is that, uh, you know, according to Song Genius, let's, um, let's see. Isaac is commenting on how uh, no matter what the motions are, the end result is that everything must stop moving and, and fall into place. Essentially, we're all, we all have agency, but eventually our actions and words will result in us coming to terms with what, what we, have, uh, we have made in our old age. Then he compares the unavo- unavoidable aging of both fruit and humans while repeating the theme of everything working out, implying it's a fact as well. I dig it. I want you to track three, uh, Dark Center of the Universe. I, I love in uh, the first chorus where he says, um, <laughs> well, it took a lot of work to be the ass I am, and I'm really damn sure that anyone can equally easily fuck you over right uh it, it it's again i mean my singing is terrible but it's something about not only the lyrics and, and and what he's saying sometimes but the way that isaac delivers those lines and the just his weird is that weird lisp and just a fucked up way of like singing shit a lot of times like it 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 works extremely well later 
I'm going to just go ahead and reveal it. Fuck it. Later this month, I have a giant, gigantic episode planned for uh, Pixies, uh, Doolittle album, right? And that's going to lead into uh, September, which will be Influencer Month, where I'm like talking about, you know, bands and artists that have had like ripple effects in the industry for like 30, 40 plus years, right? That should be really fun. So stick around for that in September. But one of the bands that... They never, I never see it explicitly listed anywhere, but it, they've got to be. Like, there's no way they sound so much alike in some aspects and not, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's no way the Pixies didn't influence Modest Mouse in some fucking way because Francis Black, his screaming and, and just like the, the kind of surreal, odd, whatever lyrics, it, it's, I don't know. There, there's no way that that didn't seep into what Modest Mouse was doing, right? Because, I mean, they sound... They're similar enough to where it's like, damn, you know. And like I said, Francis Black's scream or Black Francis, I can't remember which which one he goes by now. But uh, him and Isaac's screams are like not not identical, but they are very similar, very similar, uh, uh, among other things, right? Uh, so anyway, a little uh, side sidebar there, I guess. Uh, so Song Genius says that uh, even he may have put effort into being a dick, others can be an asshole. As you know, as he is, you know, anyone who can, anyone who has put time and effort into something can easily can be easily matched by others who are naturally gifted at it. Uh, even though the only thing he is good at is being unlikable, other people can do that better. The sense of unimportance t- ties in with his statements on not being the quote dark center of the universe like you thought. Sure, why not? So it's a it's a good upbeat song throughout, pretty much. You know, the kind of the usual cynicism and. Uh, sarcastic tone you, you expect from Isaac, you know, it comes out and comes through a lot in the song. I do love the, well, God said something, but he didn't mean it. Everyone's life ends, but no one ever completes it. Dry or wet ice, they both melt and you're equally cheated. Now, it seems to say that no matter what you do, you're going to die unfulfilled and nothing matters in the end anyway. Or at least that's what it uh, means to me. So let's, um, let's brighten things up just a little bit with a perfect disguise at track four. So uh, he says in verse one, well, you've got the perfect disguise and you're looking okay. From the bottom of the best of the worst, well, what can I say? Because you cocked your head to shoot me down and I don't give a damn about you or this town no more. No, but I know the score. And he says uh, in verse two, um, uh, you need me to fall down so you can climb up some full ass ladder. Well, good luck, I hope. I hope there's something better up there. I've kind of always taken the song to be about him maybe leaving the town or them leaving the town they were from and the people maybe not taking their band seriously and like them kind of showing like, hey, look, we're going to make it or whatever. It's, it's a fairly short song that kind of leads into, it leads into one of my favorites, uh, the next track, Tiny Cities Made of Ashes. Uh, it's got this like kind of funky rhythm to it or whatever. I also really like, it's just, you know, it, it, it sounds pretty great. But in the first verse he says, um, actually not the, it's throughout the whole song, he, he repeats it later, but says, uh, we're going down the road. Uh, towards tiny cities made of ashes. I'm going to hit you on the face. I'm going to punch you in your glasses. Oh, no. I just got a message that said, yeah, hell is frozen over. I got a phone call from the Lord saying, hey, boy, get a sweater right now. Boom, 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 boom. Anyway, uh, it's pretty great. So uh, I like the idea that like God himself is like, nah, man, you're fucked. You know, see you in hell. Bye. Like, it's pretty great, right? Really, um, it's pretty straightforward uh, kind of not super um, hard to interpret, but um, this leads into one of my favorite songs on the record, but then also 
probably has one of my favorite all-time Midas Mouse lyrics, period. Uh, track six, A Different City. So when he says, uh, I want to live in a city with no friends and family. I want to look out the window of my color TV. And then this part, I just I love it. But I want to remember to remember to forget you forgot me. I'm going to look out the window of my color TV. But yeah, he says to open the song, right? So um, says that, you know, the, the narrator here is fed up with his current existence. This is kind of a, a common sentiment with uh, Isaac Brock's lyrics. And uh, they, they reference the, uh, the, world, um, the world at large, the opening track on... Uh, good news for people who love bad news. However, uh, wanting to live wanting to live in the city isn't typical of Brock, who spoke out against urbanization in the lonesome crowd at West. So, as the following line suggests, the narrator narrator's depression has caused him to seek an isolated existence with a steady diet of TV and loneliness. Also, again, <laughs> I want to remember to remember to forget you forgot me. It's like fuck that. Like that line cuts deep. The verses two, you know, where he says, uh, through the cracks in the wall, slow motion for all, dripped out of the bars, someone smart said nothing at all. I'm watching TV. I guess that's a solution. They gave me a receipt that said I didn't buy nothing. So rusted the fire and our blood oxidizes. My eyes rolled around, all around on the carpet. Oh, hit the deck. It's the decal man standing upside down and talking out of his pants. Kind of a lot to unpack there. But um, that last little bit about the decal man, uh, at least... Song genius, right? So take your salt. Ah, grain of salt. Could be a politician. At the time the album was made, uh, old W. Bush had just become president. And surely Isaac is is cynical of that, I would imagine. It says here that he sees uh, t- politicians as tools of corporations. Uh, not only that, everything they say is pulled right out of their ass. I never think of this album in that context. But, um, you know, it came out at a weird time for the country. You know, after the, uh, the sham that was the 2000 election. So some of the lyrics and things could have been influenced by that. But then again, eh, maybe not. No, because the, the election happened in November of 2000. This came out in June of 2000. So it would have already been written and done. So it could have just been, um, I don't know, politicians in general. Who knows? So I guess disregard the uh, the W line because he wouldn't have been elected anyway at the time uh, of the writing of the record, at least. Also, so I like the song. It ends with a callback to... The song I Came as a Rat with like the dreamy sounding, uh, I don't know, but I've been told you'll never die and you never grow old. Moving right along, track number seven, the cold part. So he, he, he starts the song with so long to this cold, cold part of the world. Uh, these simple lines reflect the title of the album, The Moon in, in Antarctica, while the bone bleached part of the world that the narrator refers to could easily be Antarctica. Uh, it's more likely that the barren, inhospitable wasteland of that continent is a stand-in for something else. The moon and Antarctica touches on themes of depression and isolation more overtly than any other Minus Mouse album. The cold part immediately follows two tracks that focus on cities, and, you know, a tiny, tiny city is made of ashes and a different city. And in both songs, uh, Brock discusses leaving behind soulless urban environments where social isolation has wreaked havoc on his mental well-being. Uh, the cold part is a final goodbye to these dark places. However, it is not the nadir of the album's examination of depression. Alone down there, with its eerie imitation of the narrator's conscience, is one of the album's most intensely personal tracks. The line too, where he says, uh, "So long to this sal- so long to this salt-soaked part of the world. Uh, when soil contains too much salt, plants will not grow there, and the land becomes barren." This supports the theory that this cold part of the world is not simply Antarctica; rather, it simply refers to a place devoid of life. Uh, tears are also known for tasting salty. So Isaac is saying that he is saying goodbye to a tear-filled and depressing life. Jesus. It's a slow burner of a song and a damn good one at that. Alone Down There is next, and it is also a favorite. In an interview with Isaac 
Brock, he spoke of the song, saying it was about an instance when or where he hallucinated meeting the devil. Uh, the song is an artistic recreation of the conversation he had with the hallucination, which that's pretty fucking awesome. So he says in the verse, how do, how do you do? My name is you. Flies, they all gather around me and you too. And to the, uh, you can't see anything well. You ask me what size it is, not what I sell. The flies, they all gather around me and you too. I like the chorus too where he says, uh, you know, well, I don't want you to be alone down there, to be alone down there, to be alone. It's just, again, it's just the way he, he delivers is a simple line, but it's, you know, in, in a way that only Isaac can, I guess. It's like, uh, he's like, I, I don't want you to be alone down there, to be alone down there, to be alone. And, and, you know, it's just, it's pretty great. Now, he does better than that, obviously, but, but you know, in the second verse where he sings, um, but the, the, the devil's apprentice, he gave me some credit. He fed me a line and I'll probably regret it. I don't want you to be alone down there, to be alone down there, to be alone. Again, the song's not heavy on lyric, but it's kind of just like one of the songs where there's a, a certain feel to it and everything. It kind of just like engrosses you, right? And then the instrumental outro as well is, I love it. It's one of my favorites on the record. There's a big one up next. Uh, the stars are projectors at uh, 8 minutes, 46 seconds. I think it's the longest on the record. So in the, the first verse, you know, he says, uh, in the last second of life, they're going to show you how. How they run this show. Sure, run it into the ground. Let's, you know, let's open the song. So as uh, someone is dying, they will discover how the universe and human civilizations are controlled. However, as is a common theme in Modest Mouse discography, especially on this album, this control is really being used to a destructive end. So in the chorus, you know, he sings, uh, and the stars are projectors, yeah, projecting our lives down to this planet Earth. And the stars are projecting, yeah, are, are projectors, yeah, projecting our minds down to this planet Earth. Everyone wants a double feature. They want to be their own damn teacher and how. Uh, so even in death, many people aren't looking to discover the truth behind it all, but rather attempt to reinforce what they already believe. They want to believe that their beliefs are a result of their special recognition of universal truths instead of the product of societal forces. Uh, so later he sings, It's all about moderate climates. You gotta be cold and be hot for sure. And it's all, it's all about moderate climates. You want to be blessed and be cursed for sure. I think it's more of a reference of an inability to make up one's mind. Uh, for example, uh, picture a, a perfect depiction of the future. Some would call it utopian, others might call it dystopian. We complain when it's too hot, when it's too cold, hence the blessed and cursed. If everything were perfect, life would be meaningless. While that's bleak, I guess it makes sense. Then later on, he says, uh, you've got the harder part. You've got the kinder heart, and it's true. I've got the easy part. I've got the harder heart. Ain't that true? So you know, life becomes difficult when you have the ability to care about others. Uh, to Brock, it seems the easiest way to live is to simply detach from everything. Then later, he says, uh, in, you know, just kind of a weird thing, he says, uh, well, well, right wing, left wing, chicken wing, it's built on finding the easier ways through. And somebody looks like they kind of tied that to politics or, you know, in a way, or or they said, uh, you know, Republican, Democrat, Republican or Democrat, who really cares? You know, everyone is in the struggle together. Politics is simply an extension of civilization. Uh, chicken wings can't fly. So neither political side will elevate our current condition is how they put, you know, they put their spin on it, I guess. Was there a need for creation that was hidden in a math equation that asked this? Where do circles begin? So he says later in the song, right? Explaining existence through logic. Uh, it, again, it seems this is all song genius people kind of 
making their own spin on this whole thing. But um, to uh, Isaac, the question of how the universe began is the same as asking where where do circles begin. It's an unanswerable question uh, because the universe uh, to Isaac is an abstract concept with no beginning or end. Uh, this is also a reference possibly to the never-ending math equation. It's also a callback to a lyric from Third Planet where he says, uh, you know, the universe is shaped exactly, exactly like the Earth. If you go straight long enough, you'll end up where you were. The lyrics end there, but there's a really cool instrumental part that goes on for like three minutes or whatever to end the song. Up next, Wild Pack of Family Dogs. This is a fun one. They they say here it's a song about mental illness. Uh, I'm not sure how true that is, but... The, uh, the mention of an unstructured wild pack of family dogs alludes to the hereditary factor of most mental illnesses and how families played with them tend to not really be families at all, just uncivilized havoc. Uh, it's a weird, kind of disjointed sounding, sounding song, you know? He says uh, in, in the third verse, Well, my dad, he quit his job today. Well, I guess he was fired, but that's okay. And I'm sitting outside my mud lake, waiting for the pack to take me away right after I die. The dogs start floating up towards the golden sky, the glowing sky. Now they'll receive their reward. Now they will receive their rewards. Yeah, they will receive their rewards. And he sings in the song, right? Now it's just a, a weird song that's endlessly enjoyable. Just a bunch of kind of, I wouldn't say nonsense lyrics, but you know, it's just a bunch of just weird shit. He likes to sing <laughs> or whatever, and it makes a uh, makes for a good a good modest mouth song. Right. So, uh, Paper Thin Walls is next. So this one, you know, he sings, uh, These walls are paper thin, and everyone hears every little sound. Everyone's a voyeur, and as as they're watching me watch them watch you right now, they're shaking their hands, shaking their hands, they're shaking in their shoes, oh Lord, don't shake me down. Uh, everyone wants two of them, and half of everyone else is around. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> it's been agreed the whole world stinks, so no one's taking showers anymore. That's what he sings to open the song with. And, um, you know, these, these lines are like metaphors for being paranoid uh, about you know, people watching him and shit. And the fact that the world, the walls are, quote, paper thin. They don't block out much sound. So, you know, people all around you know what you're doing, I guess. Or you think they know what you're doing. Right. In, in connection with the previous lines, I guess they said here that it may be the whole lack of privacy thing. Right. Or it may be just the way he feels being on stage and having the crowd look at him. You know, it could be it too. That that seems like it could be a play on on a lot of things, but it, that could definitely be one of them. But uh, I came as a rat. Is up next the line. Uh, it takes a long time, but God dies too. But not before he'll stick it to you. It's probably like my second favorite lyric on the record. Uh, funny enough, although it it has that wonderful line, this is probably my least favorite on the record. Uh, it's not a bad song, of course, but if if I if I have to skip one, then this is probably the one I'll skip. So, yeah, moving on, Lives, the next song is really, really, really good. So it can be broken down into three parts, if you so desire. A cynical view on life, a quote-unquote positive view on life, and then back to a cynical view. Uh, In the middle of the song, the tone becomes upbeat and motivational, but slowly takes a turn back to the, like, you know, the, the cynical view, right? The second part of the song ends with where he says, why fight this this marks the transition back to the cynical view. Uh, lives provides insight into how depression and other mental illnesses affect someone's thoughts. Uh, despite wanting to feel better and be more positive, you just spiral back into your original state, no matter how much you want it to be true or how hard you try. So uh, he opens the song with, Everyone's afraid of their own life. If you could be anything you want, I bet you'd be disappointed. Am I right? Uh, no one really knows the ones they love. 
If you knew everything they thought, I bet you'd wish that they just shut up. I do really love that as well. And then uh, in the bridge, you know, he says, uh, and, and it's our lives. It's hard to remember. It's hard to remember that we're alive for the first time. And he says, you know, it's hard to remember we're alive for the last time. It's hard to remember to live before you die. Uh, it's hard to remember that our lives are such a short time. It's hard to remember. It's hard to remember when it takes such a long time. That's just a, a great little uh, section there. You know, it's like uh, people forget that life is short because it's just, I don't know, it seems like the longest thing ever. I mean, but, you know, you, I guess maybe we forget that we're just around for a limited amount of time. <laughs> they, they would kind of return to this theme a few years later on the song One Chance as well, which um, that's a great fucking song off of um, Good News for People Who Love Bad News. But then he sings the lines, my mom's God is a woman and my mom, she is a witch. I like this. I guess, so Isaac's mom believes that God is a woman, which is great. So if, if God existed, you know, I think I would like to go the um, the dogma route and have it just like be Alanis Morissette, because why not? <laughs> I guess she's, I don't know, they say she's Wiccan. We don't know that. That's un, un, an unsubstantiated claim. I mean, he does say that his mom's a witch, but I, I don't know. It could, it could have been him just saying some crazy shit just to make it sound cool. Who knows? But he, I guess th- this could hold true that he manages to find some solace in the idea that other people have the ability to believe in a higher power that gives their lives meaning, while not necessarily believing in something himself, right? Life Like Weeds is up next. In this Life Like Weeds, you're just a rock to me. He sings to him in the song. Uh, so, you know, weeds have a, a, a resilience that help them survive and to thrive, even in infertile soil or amongst rock. Uh, they can squeeze a living out of even the most otherwise inhospitable environments, yet their lives are still fruitless and transient. Really shitting on weeds here. In comparing our lives as people to that of weeds, Brock is making an elaborate metaphor for humanity's search for identity in a vast and largely hostile universe. Uh, rocks are obstacles to weeds, and as such, other people can appear as obstacles in our own lives. If the rocks can symbolize more than just people, they can symbolize any and all obstacles in a person's life, including especially the search for identity and a purpose, the search for meaning. Sure. So uh, this next part, too, is pretty great. Uh, he says, uh, I could I could have told you all that I love you. The narrator realizes here that instead of seeing and treating others as obstacles, rocks, as I mentioned before, uh, he could have seen their value and told them that he loved them. Uh, this thought leads him to explore what his relationships truly mean. And in the places you go, you'll see the places where you'll see the place where you're from, is what he says next. And no matter where you go, uh, the places you've been prior have shaped the person you are. And in retrospect, the places you've been are often the cause of where you are. Uh, the concept of home becomes clearer when it is put into perspective by its comparison with or contrast against new places. Uh, perhaps also. Brock sees the similarity in all places as they're, as they're just like home, full of people searching for ide- for meaning and identity. And in the faces you meet, you'll see the places, you'll see the place where you'll die. Uh, so after your death, yeah, you'll keep living in the minds of people close to you until they perish too. Wait a little longer, and it's as if you've never even been. So more personally, after death, uh, I guess Brock will live in and the minds of the people he's reached with his music. Uh, he will be survived by his artistic influence, which will continue to shape the actions and beliefs of his fans long after his death. And in the faces you see, you'll see just who you've been. This line may describe the uh, flashback phenomena that occurs just before you die. Like, you know, uh, seeing your whole life flash 
before your eyes, whatever they say. By seeing different faces from different events of your life, you will see how you handle those situations and in turn, see just who you've been. Uh, since our search for identity, belonging, and meaning can only end with our death, the best we can do is see who we've been uh, when we look back at life. And our identity, Brock realizes, is defined by the relationships we've built and by the lives we've touched. Uh, reasoning backwards, the only meaning you can find in life is through the people you meet. Uh, these people can be a, can be those who affect you personally, for better or worse, but in Brock's case, they can also be us, his fans. And in our understanding and appreciation of his music, he finds himself pretty heavy. But um, I do like uh, later on, you know, he's in this life like weeds. You're a rock to me. I know where you're from, but where do you belong? In this life like weeds, you're the dirt I breathe. In this life like weeds, you're a rock to me. Yeah. So it's, it's a small change, but changing from seeing people as just rocks to simply rocks. Uh, he realized that people are not obstacles, but anchors. In the world of weeds, uh, rocks are eternal and immovable, and a weed can form its identity by its relationship with them. Unfurling the metaphor, the people surrounding Brock, his friends, family, fans, are anchors that he can build his life around. And like the dirt that nourishes the weed, people fill him with energy and inspiration and give his life purpose. Uh, the song is much deeper than I, I guess I've ever given it credit for. Now, I know this is just like a random song, genius person, but I feel like they're onto something here. You know, it's a really good song that uh, leads into the closer on the album, What People Are Made Of. And the one thing you taught me about human beings was this. They ain't made of nothing but water and shit. All right. He uh, screams towards the end of the song. So I guess after all the uh, album's clever metaphors, puns, and like just smart ass responses to things, Brock decides to sum it all up with uh, sum the human condition up by reminding us of who we are. Just, you know water and shit so uh, whoever the person brock is talking to maybe has given him a lot of grief or you know his poor character has at least taught brock something valuable life is transitory only the symbolic lives on so uh the song title kind of makes sense now with that last line but with that the album ends and this long ass episode is finally coming to a close uh five out of five of course but the reason i guess i didn't um I don't know, so it, it, it's it's a goddamn classic, you know, hands down, right? And I love it a whole, whole, whole lot. And somehow, if you haven't heard it, you know, take a listen, right? Uh, minus the uh, Strangers to Ourselves album in 2015, they really haven't put out a single bad album. And even that one wasn't, like, super bad. I mean, it was like half was good, half was kind of shit, and it's like, well, kind of hit or miss, right? But it, they're also trying to measure up to their past releases, too, which um, it's just impossible to do, you know. I said earlier in the episode that this was my, my second favorite and I get into why. It's mainly because the Lonesome Crowd at West has too many of my favorite Bodice Mouse songs overall to not be number one. There are a couple of songs on that record that are honestly skippable to me, but um, there's only there's only one or... There's only one song here that, that I would skip, and I, yeah, I'll talk about that, but um, on that album, there's probably two, but the songs that I don't skip are so good, it's just, um, I don't know, for me, there's no way to rank this above this album, but again, very, very close second. So, you know, be sure to check me out on uh, Facebook, IG, Twitter, uh, all of that, and continue supporting the show. Uh, it means a lot, and it also helps me to support causes and charities that can make a difference. So, the uh, support link is in the description of the show so you know if you could 
click on that and follow it and, you know, maybe donate to the show so that I can continue to try to make a difference and, and help, like I said, try to help support some causes and charities and everything. So anyway, for the final countdown, I am Jeremy Levine, and I hope to be in your ears next week. Take care, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.